You are listening to Ja, 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 Nee, Nee, Nee. My name is Ratna Rumping and for the next 50 minutes you will hear a conversation that I've recorded with composer, mystic and author practitioner Laraji and choreographer and performer Raoni Muso Sale. Laraji and Raoni each have their own performance practice. Laraji is known for his ambient music concerts, playing piano, mbira and sitter. His musical career spans multiple decades by now and includes over 50 releases. His music has kept me company during moments of highs and lows. It was after a concert some years ago in Amsterdam that we briefly met and he mentioned that we both have the Ra in our names, which means son. Raoni, who also has the Ra in his name, studied at the School for New Dance Development in Amsterdam. His artistic practice of recent years has been mainly invested in the moan and sonic expressions of grief and mourning. Laraji is not only active as a musician, but also is the creator and facilitator of laughter meditation workshops, sharing the seriously fun practice of heavy laughter as a transformative and ultimately healing tool for everyone. Raoni shares his moaning practice also with others during the so-called morning socialities, gatherings where people listen to each other's wailing voices in a mode of call and response. Although the sound of laughter and the sound of grief seem to come from two very different sides of the emotional spectrum, I believe the practices of Laraji and Raoni have more in common than we would think at first sight. Both work with non-verbal vocal expression, empathic listening and body movement, allowing others to find and release their voice. So in June we came together, that is online, Laraji tuning in from Harlem, New York, Raoni from Amsterdam while I was in Berlin. Our video call lasted for almost two hours and the sound of the recording is sometimes a bit distorted, but I do hope you get a sense of the lively intergenerational exchange that happened. If you prefer to read the conversation instead, we also provide a transcript on our website. To listen into and join the practices we discuss yourself, I suggest to listen back to the other two episodes in this series. The 17-minute guided laughter release by Laraji and Raoni's poetic contemplation, gathering in a polyphonic moan safeguards solidarity. Both audio pieces are available on our website, yayayanenene.com, where you can listen back anytime. For now, let's get into the conversation. Before going deeper into laughter and into moaning, I first wanted to get into stillness. And I asked Laraji about his relation with stillness. When and where did he find it? I guess, the, thank you for the question. Uh, what comes to mind is at the age of seven, right after our family uh, sustained a house fire in New Jersey, and two brothers, two younger brothers and myself, we were moved around to temporary housing, Salvation Army relatives, and then my fa family decided to drive us to stay in Virginia and uh, the rural outbacks of Virginia with my grandfolks. 
they didn't tell us that was the plan. They drove us there. I thought we were just visiting our grand folks. The next day we woke up and my parents were gone. <laughs> we were left with the grand folks. So that was their plan. And the country was like deep dish quiet in the backwards, especially in the morning when dew would be over the, the uh, fields. Um, but that was the deepest quiet I had heard because I had been exposed to urban and town life up until then. I learned how to walk in the country by myself, up the country roads, and just the sound of your feet crackling against the ground, or the sound of a car coming down the the road a mile away. You'd hear it, or you'd hear the cows moaning out in the field. That was silence and stillness, the stillness of the countryside. And the second big one I can remember was in 1974, experimenting with meditation, marijuana, mind science. That uh, uh, after I had learned how to sit still for almost for five hours, I would go into deep, deep stillness, and I had attracted a sound hearing experience, a cosmic orchestra, one morning, and uh, the sound of this orchestra was like the whole cosmos in a, a reunion in the eternal present moment, and I could feel the stillness of my world mind just totally awed by this sound immersion and I didn't have a language to describe it properly to myself but I was totally immersed I was I am in uh, uh, an awakened sense of what eternity is and how everything in the universe is going on right now and out of that experience grew my direction from the music that I'm doing now and I gradually learned from that experience how to bring more stillness into my music uh, even to the point of leaving these roaring, quiet pauses in my performances. And uh, th that has been really accepted by large bodies of people who were amazed that they could be in a room with so many other people and let silence exist that way for maybe a minute, sometimes at the end of a concert, leaving five minutes of pause. So silence has become, uh, uh, has entered into my performance art how to leave silence and I notice just how awkward at times it feels to initiate a silence if you just want to fill it up <laughs> with something right away but I, I'm pressed to learn that gathering the people that I'm playing for accept it and breathe through it and feel it the breath of fresh air silence as a breath of fresh air yeah I feel that sometimes your music while I'm listening to the music also brings me stillness or is an introduction to it almost or taking me there mm -hmm. now that you said that that gives me the response the intention with my music is to actually not play for human beings <laughs> but play for space play, have an image of infinite space and rap pouring with infinite space so the listener would probably be drawn into that conversation and a dialogue and themselves take up the position of being the, the space I am speaking to. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that, I think. It's it's uh, opening up another space or creating this space. Yes, thank you for that. And Raoni, when I mention inner stillness, what does it mean for you? Is it something you go to? Can you find it? Do you like to find it? The first thing that comes to mind is that my moon is in Gemini, 
which means that I have a very airy sense of like emotions and I, there's a lot of thoughts woven into feeling. So it actually takes me a long time to find stillness and, and quietude in, in my body and, and in my sense of perception. Um, I, I really love what you, what you say about that. I do what you say about playing for space or playing for infinite space. I've started for a while ago this meditation practice where I just sit and um, it's a way to, it's not so much to clear the mind, it's it's not intended to clear the mind or like quiet the mind, but it, it is more a listening practice where I imagine that the, that the mind, because the mind has this airy quality that that it just moves with the sound of everything around us. So... Um, a way for me to find that quietude or for that stillness is actually, for me, it's about listening to the compositions that are already naturally in space around us and are made by everything around us, uh, all forces. And when we listen, when we learn to listen to all of these compositions in like the most broadest sense and at the same time also go minutely towards the detail, I feel like then I experience quietude because I'm not busy with myself or a sense of self or a sense of ego or what I think about the uh, about the the sounds or like uh, if I'm listening even well. It's just this like sense of like broadness, listening to the totality of all the sonic uh, presence around me, and then at the same time trying to see if I can follow that little bird. This, I feel like, can give me a big sense of stillness or quietude. I'm not busy with a task that I put on to myself, but I'm, I'm being, trying to be present with this sonic experience of life. Um, and uh, yeah, I love what, what you say about this playing for infinite space. I, I think for me, that studies that listening to that infinite space is uh quiet sonic experience of life thank you and and when i think of um i think you already both mentioned meditation or meditating or being in a meditative state i wouldn't think of laughter immediately (laughs) when i think of laughter i think ah it's quite a big sound big uh, emotion and when I think of meditation, I think of this kind of stillness. So I'm curious, like how how the laughter arrived for you, uh, or how you made this connection with um, with the me- meditative state and, and laughter. I felt like you when I first heard the term laughter meditation, because I'd done comedy and writing comedy for many years, and I also practiced meditation, but I didn't know the two words belong together until. Someone introduced me to Osho, Rajneesh Osho, who um, his disciples put together a book of his writings called the, the Orange Book of Meditations. And I was presented that book somewhere in the early 80s. And on one of the pages of the Book of Meditations was the suggestion for laughter meditation. And the subject was supposed to lie in bed in the morning before getting out of bed with eyes closed, do some stretches and just laugh for 15 minutes and do this for seven days. 
And I thought, how unusual. Why did I never thought of lying down and laughing for seven days? <laughs> but I tried it. And I was impressed, very impressed with the uh, how it beautiful day to jumpstart the day. It allowed me to notice opportunities for laughter uh, during the day. It opened up my speaking voice. Uh, and it, I began sharing it as um, small meditation in the context of my music healing workshops at that time. And the laughter had a life of its own and it took off and became a second workshop all by itself. And there was laughter meditation. And then I began making the connection between laughter, good, heavy laughter, 15 minutes a day, laughing the entire body internally can bring the uh, practitioner to a place that's equal to Shavasana in yoga where you are, the body is released, the muscles are released, the breath is released, the mind is released from uh, uh, non-essential thought flow, and we're in the best place to experience spontaneous meditation, a meditation that's waiting there for us. And so that's how I connected, learned how to connect laughter to meditation, laughing to release the body, the mind, the system from externalizing, over-externalizing, and being present in the meditation space. Osho once said that you can't laugh and think at the same time. So based on his thought, his thinking, <laughs> we can't really think or process full-blown thought while laughing. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, sounds good, but it may contribute to that final stillness at the end where you can be in meditation yeah i think you should you probably do know by now because you have been laughing a lot so i think you probably do know. <laughs> and um but when you give these because i think you call them also like laughter play shops right or laughter workshops yes play shops um can you, yeah, for us who have not been there, explain a bit like how you go about it, like after all those years? At the beginning, we were calling it laughter workshops, but discovered that in guiding groups of people into laughter, uh, if they come to a laughter workshop for the first time, there's an ambition about exposing yourself during the laughing process because you do expose your vulnerability. So I learned it was my I learned that it was my role at the beginning of the workshop to get people relaxed, free, open, and trusting. And the way to do that was to get them into the play zone, so that we played with laughter. And during the play zone, we invite our inner child to join us in the laughter, so that uh, at the beginning of the workshop, we're playing, playing with our toes, our body. We're getting into uh, reciting this one. Uh, statement that we opened the workshop with is called play is the spontaneous exploration of sensation. I start experimenting with six different laughter sizes where we're laughing through the head, through the throat, through the thymus and the chest, the heart, the abdominal organs and the lungs. And by that time we're into a playful mode and we play with the exercises instead of working with 
Yeah, I really like this idea of the play zone. Um, I think Aroni can maybe also uh, relate to this a bit. Um, and I think you also both work with movement um, in different ways, but uh, I will go a bit into your practice, Aroni, and then we can go further. Um, because you have a, you studied choreography in Amsterdam, um, so you will mean that work also as a performer, as a dancer, on choreographies um and still a lot of your um, the work that you did in recent years is related to sound also during your studies specifically the sound of grief and the sound of the moan um can you share with us like when that sound the moan arrived for you or when you became aware like wait i have to be more attentive to that sound or work with that sound I went through a big transition in my life. Uh, one of the, I mean, I went through many transitions like we all do, but one of the other big transition during my studies was, um, related to gender stuff. And, um, so as I was, I w as I was kind of grieving this old self and another self was arriving through both taking on hormones, but also playing with all kinds of different um, gestures of gesturing myself into the world, uh, both sonically because my voice was changing, but also, yeah, physically in terms of, um, yeah, the way I was dancing through the world was now becoming a different uh, kind of dance. And uh, in that in that transitioning, um, this figure came to me called Lashes and now through lashes is a reference to my old name which is uh which meant um eyelashes so this figure came and i knew that she had to be wearing like long um pieces of hair down her cheeks representing some kind of hairy mm, waterfall of of uh, crying um and somehow something about this figure said like she needs the mom and it specifically at first it was this like nagging mom like in a way also because that transition was so much like i didn't know what to do with this old self there was so much nagging in there like i i don't know what to do there was a lot of like um complaint in there of of, of the not knowing um and this nagging as i kept on nagging moaning like oh, 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 like all of this, I started hearing the the grief that was present in it, the the crying that is present, the wailing that is present in the sound, and so I yeah I went deeper into the the sound of grief that is in the moan, um, and yeah I I spend a lot of time moaning in the studio, listening to the sound. I was doing a lot of research then also on grief and one of my biggest one of my biggest uh, teachers he his name is Martin Precto you might know of him Laraje I don't know he's uh, Mar Martin Precto his name he used to be for 35 years or 25 years he used to be a shaman for the Tuzutuhil people in Venezuela and um until he, there were bombings and he, he needed to flee there, but 
he basically speaks about grief and praise being two arms of the same body, which means that when you grieve, you're actually praising the thing that was lost. Uh-huh. And when you are when you are praising something for real, when you say like, oh, I love you, my friend, I'm I'm so happy that you're here. When you're actually praising someone, you're immediately faced with the mortality of all things. So you're actually grieving. Uh-huh. So in that way, I like, I started to open up this whole world to me that, wow, grieving is not just like sadness. It's really about like when you're grieving truly, you are praising life. You are praising mm-hmm. the fact that you are here being able to be present in life. So that for me like opened the moan as a as a spectrum, as a sonic spectrum to all these other possibilities of joy entering into the moan. So suddenly the sensual moan started appearing into the moan. The, the laughter as a moaning sound started appearing. The... Uh, there is a lot of like singing, wailing that for me really um, attributes to or like uh, ser- serves to 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 praise. Um, yeah, I think. Oh, yeah, maybe something else important uh, to mention also because it's not just a com- it's obviously a conversation between the three of us, but also for a larger uh, maybe audience that. Um, the culture that I'm from is uh, Shia culture, which is um, so in Islam you have two main um, uh, main um, what it movements. So you have the Sunni and the Shiite. And I grew up as a Shiite, uh, which I, I don't practice anymore uh, that religion. But in my culture, you have um, this month of mourning. We call it the month of uh, uh, Muharram, which is a month where we basically um, uh, commemorate a um, historic battle where many, many people got killed because they were resisting against oppression of, of their belief, of their religion. And in that month, we are mourning. So it's a whole month of grief. And I remember really vividly because I've now I've been here in the Netherlands for 23 years, but before I lived in Pakistan. And in Pakistan, you had these like huge communities. You had like a a square full of maybe 1,000 or 2,000 people and everybody is chest beating during this month. There's a, a particular event where people gather and wear black and green and they beat on their chests while they do these big kind of wailing cries uh, and reciting certain Quranic verses. You have to imagine of like 2,000 people beating on their chest, all these bodies becoming drums and wailing, that had such a huge impact on me that, yeah, as I was thinking about choreography and thinking about choreography being also this powerful tool to gather people in space and organize bodies in space, I had this huge desire to maybe not replicate such a scenario because it's impossible, but attempt to a new form that is also maybe taking into consideration all the diasporic communities in the Netherlands that have all their own different cultures. And yeah, I felt like it was really a huge responsibility. I felt it also as a beautiful responsibility that since I was moaning and it was releasing and transforming so much inside of me and around me that 
I felt like it's my responsibility to to transfer this knowledge to people around me. Do you remember the first time you organized these mornings of charity mm-hmm. coming together in a circle, right? Yeah. Long, yeah. Once of this morning sound, was it only with a few people or? This was actually right after the George Floyd killing and there was a huge uh, uprising here in the Netherlands as well. And and it was also during the pandemic. So I had been already moaning for a while and I had sometimes also uh, asked people to come and join me in the studio. And then I did this big circle, which was just focused on bringing maybe more people of color, black and people of color just together and yeah, it's so it's it's um, the morning sociality is also it's a way of socializing together. So that's why I call it also sociality. We would come, everybody would bring some food. Um, we would start together with a with an altar around a question that I had asked. People would bring objects or drawings or photos. We make an altar in the circle, uh, in the middle of the circle, and then I would propose these um, physical exercises and these. Uh, sound exercises and then we actually go into a an hour of call and respond a moaning call and respond so one person calls and then the whole group listens to that moaning call that wailing call and listens to the stories and the images and yeah all the sonic um but also the the psychic material and data that is in that call and then the whole group responds from a space of affectedness to uh, to that call, and then we wait again till someone else finds the courage to do a call, and then the whole group starts to uh, respond as, uh, in a will as well. Uh, yeah, that was such a yeah out of like it was a beautifully immense, beautifully immense experience where I learned how much this also was needed. And how it also really opened up people's bodies, specifically for those maybe who have experienced that their voices were so suppressed for such a long time, uh, mm. for many different reasons. And then they started wailing and to, to first be able, just be able to be present with your own moaning sound. It's like there's so much shame and all these are complex emotions that arise from the moan. Um, and to be able to like be generous towards yourself and listen to the moaning sounds that you make and to be able to hold a generous space and listen to the other people's wailing sounds, to see that that is possible, to see that it's really a methodology that can also be taught was, uh, was really a beautiful experience, yeah. Look, during the laughter work, we invite the participants across the line and Mm. to discover how close they are to crying and tears and then play with that line to, uh, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I'm experimenting with to see how much that exercise would contribute to our, when we are engraved to remember just how close we are to celebration exactly 
And so the sounds, I even do that when I'm doing crying, doing laughter workshop. I haven't had much reason to cry except self-imposed <laughs> crying. Uh, and I think that has to do with the depth of my inner meditation, is to know the background of an eternal balance thing feels is here while the world is unfolding. So how not to get overly caught up in the world is what my meditation practice has taught me. So crying, uh, I have to impose it. <laughs> yeah. I haven't, the closest I've come to feeling deep physical is when I visited Bosnia and we were driving from the sound of, uh, from the, from the coast into Bosnia at night and the moon was shining. And I, as we were getting closer to Bosnia, I could see the silhouettes of houses that were destroyed. And I started getting the gravity of what had taken place there. And finally getting to our hotel that about two o'clock in the morning and going to bed and then waking up right away because I thought I heard somebody crying and I thought somebody's outside still resonating from the war, but it actually was uh, coming from a tower, a Muslim tower, a morning call to prayer, which to me sounded like wailing provided justified it by the situation, but it's probably a sound of calling, um, heartful calling to come and surrender to uh, the peace of Allah. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, what you're saying, how much celebration can be in grief or how how celebratory grieving can be or how humorous grief can be. I feel like that means to me when when I work with the moaning spectrum, I work with one of the one of the sounds that we work with is also indeed the crying laughter being really close to each other. So we always start with a moan that goes into a laughter that then mm -hmm. goes into a crying that comes again back into a moan. And and I call it the laughter crying madness also because there's something about like like there's something about that like not knowing if it's tipping into like sadness or, or crying and then tipping back into laughing it, i feel like it creates this sound of like madness which i think it's a beautiful sound that is unpredictable that can move you into not knowing what your experience exactly is but but all of the complexities of um of both joy and deep deep grief which is not sadness which is not depression it's just grief it's the the heart is breaking and it's such a beautiful experience at the same time. I feel like that that madness is really present in that crying laughter dance. Uh, do you acknowledge a difference between loaning and groaning? I use groaning. Um, I use groaning uh, more with like uh, when I do the, the, the sighing. So when... When I teach the moaning spectrum, I have uh, made like categorized it into sighing, whimpering, which is more like <laughs> this kind of sound, the whimper, and then uh, the the nagging, which is more like <laughs> yeah, there is complaint more in the nagging. 
this is still, still yeah for me this is still all uh, moaning i mean because it, moaning has such a like a wide spectrum for me um then then we do this like singing wailing which is more of a finding your own rhythm which which for me is more like and when i do this type of singing waiting i try to encourage people to find their own rhythm in it i really think that there's something about also listening to the grief or to the waning in other people's voices, that that also gives this sense of I'm allowed to feel all this grief, or I'm also allowed to be in this space that is really uncomfortable uh, because everyone around me is also in that space of deep uncomfortability, but uh, trying to transform it. Do, do you define uh, there is a grief, different amounts of quantities of grief in different groups of people, and people of color, people not of color, people of uh, gender liberation? I would say not so much in quantity of grief, but I think it's more about like um, there's different approaches and there's different relationships grief. I've had sessions with all white participation. There is uh, something about like Western culture, uh, something about the inaccessibility of a space of uh -huh. And so there it requires a very different kind of facilitation uh, to do when people really don't even have also not heard even the sounds of crying around them, that it's really absent. The sound of grief is really absent. I'm glad to hear that you're using many synonyms for you know, wailing and groaning and moaning. But uh found out there's synonyms for laughter. That in the workshop, the play shop, when people have difficulty dealing with laughter because they have response columns to the word laughter, I suggest use other words like euphoria celebration, mm -hmm. ecstasy, gratitude. And if right. you can just be in gratitude while going through this, you may not have to call it laughter. You're just joy, the joy of receiving, the joy of recognizing your blessings. Right. So the, uh, you use alternative words, grief and wailing. Wailing is not the term that I use that much. I think of the wailing wall and right. Jerusalem, but the idea of wailing comes up, uh, Probably a mother somewhere who lost her son in the war, or uh, absolutely a, a connect to the re to the imagined reality of that. Mm -hmm. So it's healing to me in the sense that it uh, reconnects me to the, the fuller spectrum, the, the sonic right. spectrum of the human experience. Right. Yeah, I have a question. Uh, actually, I was wondering with your with your long experience do this also a bit tapping into the crying but this this laughter sounds like have you for me i really notice a sense of madness in there in laughter when i say madness i do not mean to pathologize uh, the word madness uh, i think madness 
has a lot of play in it. So that's how I use this word, not as a pathology, not as a sickness, but really rather as a space of being or a state of being that is really unpredictable. And in that place of unpredictability has houses a lot of play. Um, so that's how I use the word madness. And yeah, I'm just curious what your experiences are in terms of laughter and madness or going into fits of laughing that be maybe open up maybe in your sense of being a sense of unpredictability or if you've experienced that. Well, the word madness is very, uh, very astute that, uh, the laughter play shop is primarily about laughing inwardly. So you're learning to vibrate your pituitary, your brain with your laughter, your thyroid, boosting your immune system, softening your heart from the trauma and massaging your internal organs and releasing stagnant or stale air. So that my ideal result of this, if someone does it, that they'll transform the quality and character the personality of their laughter so that if they're laugh doing these exercises in public the last thing you're going to look like is mad but you're going to, you're going to look more like somebody who's circulating prana massaging and loving their body with their laughter who are in joy and in celebration now there's the lunatic and the mon maniacal form of laughter that can happen if someone hasn't uh, given an inner justification to the laughter that, <laughs> that uh, your description of madness is pretty cool. That uh, to be laughing with maybe uh, losing constraints, you, you don't have a sense of control. To lose control can look pretty uh, threatening in public. If you're just sitting in a airport terminal and bust out with laughter, like yeah. if you're doing the playful meditation laughter, it may look like you're. <laughs> You shouldn't look too threatening. <laughs> yeah. It'd be an infectious laughter too, that draws someone into feeling the inner thera therapeutic value of their own laughter. Because in your practice, Laranti, you sometimes, I think I also saw the video where you were explaining the laughter, different laughters to someone else. And then you yes. speak at some point about laughter to the heart and what mm -hmm. Laughter does the heart need, and then the laughter goes very soft, suddenly. Um, <laughs> right? This is kind of <laughs> yes, the soothing. I usually ask participants, "How do you like your heart being treated?" And one will have their own answer: playful, peaceful, lovingly, tenderly. I'll suggest we'll put that intention on the tone of your voice. Know that your voice vibrates your chest. And feel that tone vibrating your chest. Create a tone that uh, embodies that that intention. It's a, a peaceful tone. Mm, let's feel your voice massaging your heart. Uh, and let that same tone create a laughter, a heart-specific laughter with that same intention. Uh, oh, ooh. All the time, the hand is over the heart so that you're validating that you're feeling the physical presence of your voice treating your heart with a tone that you like your heart being treated. So that's uh, the internal work with the voice and laughter on the heart. 
because um, I admit that I've sustained a lot of bumps and hiccups in my life to the heart. You call them whether jilts, traumas, disappointments, and uh, to actually give attention to the heart. Ah, yes, everything's okay now. Mm. <laughs> I'm here. I know you're here too. <laughs> Speaking to the body part through our laughter. Mm. <laughs> it was during my time in Virginia living with my grandfolks that I learned how to access the higher register of my voice during laughter because of my grandfather. It was mm. uh, He would laugh in the higher registers of his voice and it would just send it out over the countryside and there's <laughs> and so i guess that gave me permission to use a full range of my voice in laughter hmm. and at times i'm wondering if i'm allowing let's say the feminine aspect of myself to be included in this uh experience of re laughter release to to access full range of my lower voice and the higher voice. I like uh, the word permission that you mentioned hearing the laughter of your grandfather and then you thought, ah, permission, I can also go. And I think you both in the work you do do something that gives others permission to also <laughs> sound or release. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I also really love in this story that now your the your grandfather as a sonic uh, as one of the sonic expressions of your grandfather is alive within you, or like that. Mm. I feel like this is the beauty of call and response is that like with each call in this high register of laughter is also a response or an honoring of this sound that came before you, right? Yeah. Um, which That's I, true. yeah, I think it's really beautiful how our voices and our sounds are not just us as singular beings. They are mm -hmm. containing so much like, yeah, registers, literally like polyphonic registers that are, yeah, not just about us, but also about uh, who came before and who taught what, uh, whom what, uh, I find, uh, incredibly beautiful how much storytelling also is and yeah in these sounds yeah yeah polysonic register yeah oh, i'm getting some groovy words from you wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> do you find yourself into spontaneous crying or moaning or grieving as a result of your Absolutely. I, this resonated so strongly with me when you, when, when I heard you speak in that YouTube uh, video about, um, about how you can, because of the laughter that you have now so much space for, to be present with other people's laughter when you encounter mm -hmm. it in your daily life. I was like, this is exactly, these are the exact, this is exactly the same experience that I feel with the moaning that when, when like I, Sometimes, you know, when I'm just like listening to the howling of the wind, I feel like my heart is like crying. 
just because mm-hmm. there I'm listening to the howling out of the wind and I can I can imagine that I'm hearing something in the howling of the wind and then I like I notice that my, my tears are flowing down my cheeks or when when people sometimes like oh like they they groan a little bit and I lean, lean in a little bit closer I notice that I'm much more perceptive to the pain that people also carry mm-hmm. uh, which makes it really a very sympathetic way of being in relation with each other. Yeah. At some point, do you feel that you'll get done with wailing and moaning? That you will have cleansed the entire... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think for me, like, I think at some point, I hope to move on to somewhere else, but I hope that someone else picks up the stick. And he's like, yeah. I'm gonna do some new things with this morning. Like that someone else gets really inspired and other practices start with that and that they feel really the urgency. Okay, this whole thing is opening up this for me. I need to give this a life. And then it means that I can slowly retrieve into something else. But until then, I it's a big pleasure and a big a pleasurable responsibility to carry this uh, practice with me and share it with people. So I'm imagining that your your moaning, groaning, wailing is contributing to your bright laughter and your bright smile. <laughs> it does. It, there's a sense of humor also with all of these, like, you know, when you're like... <laughs> There's like theatrical. <laughs> There's a lot of like humor in it as well. When we allow ourselves to have that inner child, and like, I just want an ice cream. <laughs> There's a lot of ridiculousness in there that is really delicious to be in. <laughs> so, uh, the difference between tragedy and comedy is uh, timing. Timing work. Timing, yes. Yeah. I'm thinking about something I wrote down for today, but I didn't ask a question about it yet. But it's a term I saw somewhere in an older interview with Laraji speaking about impersonal love. Are you saying impersonal? Yes. Love? Yeah. Yes. Meaning loving without uh, being in a state of lovingness without respect to any one person receiving more of it than another person just moving being out in public or to carry this sense of embracing truly love is oneness and the perception i have through meditation is that we are all there's a oneness that uh, they say is bigger than the sum of the parts and that uh when i can mindfully focus inside of this oneness and then move about the world that I'm in this, this state of impersonal lovingness that uh, I don't have to see somebody in China I don't have to see somebody in Australia that uh, the love is just automatic it's not any particular individual just radiating that probably happens when we do our workshops and our concerts, that uh, just impersonal love. 
on the sidewalks of New York performing that whether seeming houseless person or vagrant person is lying down enjoying the music the same as to a business exec who to stop to listen to the music mm-hmm. that there I don't differentiate one listener from another it's all being absorbed uh, by space so the impersonal I'm feeling it's healthier for me an impersonal love personal love uh, is a responsibility and uh, we all know personal love <laughs> it's uh, there's something yummy about it but then there's anxiety could lose or become attached to the welfare of that person and that they're not taking care of themselves we start to suffer so an impersonal love is to just radiate for me to radiate this oneness which i contact through meditation contemplation and mindful being could it replace personal love I think it could if I get so good at it that everybody gets the whole the whole current of love all the time. Then no one is special, but everyone is special. Mm-hmm. Thanks for tying this together. Moaning, yeah. groaning, laughing, singing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ah. yeah. <laughs> very uh very uh i'm i'm incredibly inspired i'm like have a pages full of things to think about and yeah there's something you mentioned that uh is akin to what i'm experimenting with at a certain point of meditation i'm realizing that i'm not i have a body but i'm not the body i am infinite space mm. and that when i attempt to laugh the body from that place I'm laughing everything in the universe and mm. the idea of sending laughter waves through everything Alpha Centauri the constellations is quite a uh, interesting experiment and I'm wondering if moaning and groaning or if moaning and groaning belongs to the rest of the universe maybe it's just yeah. an earth thing could be sending laughter out into the universe i love it yes. yeah yeah that would be impersonal moaning or impersonal that uh including everything in the now so impersonally yeah. you know nobody yeah. gets a front row seat nobody gets an orchestra seat everybody gets the same seat right right All right, beaming wonders. <laughs> I think I can say goodbye for now, but hello forever. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> hello, okay. see you soon. Yeah, All thank right. you. Hello forever then. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. Bye for you. Okay. Happy Take evening. Care. Ciao. Have a great day. Have a great Bye. day. Ciao. <laughs>